This is a piece by a guy named Larry Taunton. Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Pick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Tonight, I've titled this, given it the very innocuous um, title, Understanding What is Happening in America. And uh, this is motivated um, by the fact that I see so many Christians who are confused about what is happening in the culture, and quite rightly, by the way, there's so much that's easily to be confused uh, about. Um, I see Christians who are being intimidated and cowed into silence um, by the things that are, that are taking place. And uh, it's all, of course, extremely uh, upsetting. And uh, um, part of the reason I, I think so many are confused is because on the surface, there appears to be no logic to what is happening. Now, I will assure you that there is a logic to what is happening. But on the surface, it, there appears to be none because you think, you know, that, well, this is clearly about ending police brutality. And then you see a statue of, uh, of George Washington that's toppled, and you go, okay, recalculating. Yes, it's not about that. It must be about ending racism. And then you see uh, a statue of an abolitionist being toppled, and you think, okay, must not be about that. Um, I have watched uh, many pundits on television uh, who, uh, because they're good, decent people, uh, with a moral compass, they look for the, for the logic in what's happening, and they're not generally landing upon it. So I'm hoping this evening that, um, that the tumblers will line up when I'm done so that the key turns and that you understand, you have a way of interpreting what is taking place in the culture. Now, I want to begin with a bit of a testimonial. Because um, many people have asked me, and often in, in not-so-gentle tones, why I started addressing political issues. Uh, those of you who have followed our work for a very long time, the Work Fixed Point Foundation, will know um, that when we started in 2004, um, we worked, I worked, at dialogue using the cultural buzz. I mean, that was the that was the uh, um, the atmosphere in which I cut my teeth engaging with people who did not agree with me, unbelievers and people on the political left. It was all about dialogue. It was all about tolerance. All about mutual understanding. And because of that, uh, I sought to engage as gently as possible. And so um, you, those of you who are familiar with our work will recognize that uh, my first two books, both of them sought to straddle the line between speaking to my side and forming my side of the debate, while at the same time gently engaging people on the other side. Those of you who have attended our debates will know that this is something that we endeavor to do all over the world. And then something changed for me. And this is something that, you know, people who, you're the first people I've told this to, other than my wife and some, some, some close intimates. Um, what was it that changed for me so that the tenor changed? Now, other than the fact that Abraham Kuyper, the great statesman and theologian of the 19th, early 20th century, who said this, there's not one square inch of human existence 
that Jesus does not point to and say, that is mine. So in other words, if you think of the totality of human existence like a pie chart, it's not like he says, that's mine, but that little sliver called politics is not. You don't go there. Jesus engaged on many political issues. And uh, part of the frustration, if you go and look at a 2012 interview that I did on CNN, I had written an article titled uh, with CNN. I'd published a piece. I'd never get it published with CNN now. CNN has changed radically since that time. But I published a piece with them titled WWJVF. Who would Jesus vote for? I was playing on the, you know, the bracelets. And so Carol Costello, who I like quite a lot, she had me on her show and she said, who would Jesus vote for? Now, I have to admit there was a little bit of um, um, subterfuge in what I was doing. I didn't intend to go on and say, well, Jesus quite clearly would vote for X candidate. Rather, it was my purpose to point out that we have often created a Jesus that doesn't match with the biblical Jesus. In the same way that we've created a God that's like a cosmic Santa Claus that doesn't match with the biblical God. Uh, People forget that Jesus overturned tables, (laughs) that he fashioned a a whip from cords. They, They forget that a lot of his message dealt with judgment in hell. They forget that aspect of Jesus. But also forgotten in that is that Jesus didn't align himself with any political party. He had no political affiliations, but that didn't mean that he didn't address political issues because he did. And ultimately, it was for a political issue that he was judged and crucified. Do you remember what it is? Insurrection. That was the, what he was ultimately tried for, was that he was, he was claiming to be king. And this was used against him, but the Romans wanted to use him. And Jesus wouldn't align himself with them. The Gentiles, the the zealots wanted to use him, the religious leaders. And he ultimately held them all at arm's length and they all wanted him dead. Because he was dangerous to all of their power structures. So I just want to be clear that that's, that's the biblical Jesus. But I'll also say for me, something that changed is a, a kind of youthful idealism that hung with me beyond my youth was ultimately knocked out of me. I began to realize, uh, much to my um, great disappointment, the truth really didn't matter in the public debate. Truth does matter. It matters to God. It matters to you. It matters to me. But it doesn't ultimately matter in the public debate, as I'll demonstrate this evening. And a huge watershed moment came for me with the publication of my book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, which many of you uh, will have read. Others of you, I hope you will buy it and buy it in bulk and distribute it to your, to your, to your friends. But I worked so hard in writing that book to, to really walking, a, balancing a line between attacking those with whom I, I had deep ideological differences And in signaling my own side, I am on your side. So I was was trying to be very careful in walking that. And doing that is hard because sometimes the people on your side get angry with that. Say, why didn't you pound them? Why didn't you say this? Why didn't you do that? And I say, well, because I'm not trying to drive them away. I want them to listen to the message. And uh, that book 
And that book initially, you know, as a writer, authors have certain benchmarks that they aspire to. Certain things that they hope to tick off on their resume and say, you know, I achieved that. I got that. And early on, I felt like I was getting them all. It was so wonderful. It was so wonderful. Um, Publishers Weekly praised the book, as did the Wall Street Journal, the Times of London. I go on MSNBC's Hardball with Chris Matthews. After getting a call from his, excuse me, his producer asking me if I'd come on the show, and they always, by the way, just so you'll know, they're all the producers are always effusive in their press because they want you on the show. So they'll say to you, you know, it's like, come Hansel, come Gretel. <laughs> they'll say to you, they'll say to you, Chris loves your book, love to have you on the show, and if you're a, if you're a novice at this. You go on and you get waylaid because you don't know what's going to happen. And because I do know this and I do a lot of these kinds of interviews, I go on his show like this. <laughs> and Matthew says, I, I read this book on, it's an airplane ride. He says, no, it's, it's two airplane rides. And I love this book. It is a beautifully written book. Everybody should read this book. And I'm going, oh, Is this Chris Matthews who's talking to me in the ear? Uh, I, I, was, I was blown away that Matthews liked the book. The Gospel Coalition called it an instant classic and named it Book of the Year. Front Page Mag called it secular, called it a literary gem. And Christianity Today's reviewer said, When I picked this book up, I was quite prepared to be interested, but I didn't know exactly what I was going to think about it. But now I do know what I think about this book, and I am concerned that I might exhaust my supply of superlatives. This book is simply outstanding. Suddenly I thought, you can be loved by God and man. It's possible. And I thought the strategy is working. To be gentle to the other side. Then came the attacks. The left panicked because I was picking up secular, secular praise. It's okay to get praise from Gospel Coalition. It was okay to get it from Christianity Today. But if the New York Times and the London Times and, and the Wall Street Journal are hailing it, they have to attack it. And so the next thing you know, I'm attacked by the New Yorker. I'm attacked by the Atlantic three times. All claiming that I claimed, as they well knew that I did not, a deathbed conversion by my subject. Never claimed it. Never even hinted at it. As they well knew. I would be in interviews with people who would more or less tell you privately, I know you didn't say it, but I'm going to destroy you anyway. The Guardian in Britain attacked me twice. The Independent, also a London paper. Again, all with total disregard for the truth. Coming to my defense, the Times of London said, it's clear they haven't read the book. And I found myself pleading naively, read the book. Not knowing it was never about the book. You see, the truth was irrelevant. 
BBC Newsnight, you can watch this on our, our YouTube page. It's, it's actually quite funny. I was told before going on BBC Newsnight, be prepared to get what you thought you were going to get from Chris Matthews. And sure enough, I did. And it's a, it's a funny exchange because the guy is so pompous, he is so arrogant, and he's making claims, and I simply say, it's clear you didn't bother reading my book. You've come on the show and you didn't, you, you didn't even read a word I wrote. And he falls silent because he knows that it's true. But this is what was going on. I had come on hoping for an honest exchange about the book. They wanted nothing of the sort. Like the others, the idea was to defame and to discredit. That was the goal. But there's a bright side to some of this, or maybe some of you think it's a dark side. I don't know. Um, but I felt like uh, I had good precedence in this. I felt like Luther after the Leipzig disputation. If you know anything about Martin Luther, Luther also tried walking that line for a very long time. After he posted the 95 Theses, he is appealing to the church. He is doing everything he can not to, to anger anyone on that side unnecessarily. He's invited to a debate at Leipzig to debate a man by the name of Johann Eck. He had no idea what he was in for. And Luther, an academic who loves the truth, goes expecting to have a conversation about the things that he actually said. And he gets there, just as would later happen at the Diet of Worms. And Eck had no other goal than to label Luther a heretic. And he was skilled at it. And so he says, you know, if, if, if Karl Rove had been able to speak into Luther's ear, he would have said, when Eck asked this question, do you agree with the writings of John Huss? Now, Huss had been burned at the stake in 1415 as a heretic. Rove would have been screaming, don't answer, don't answer, don't answer. But Luther took the question very honestly, and he said, well, of the many Christian opinions of John Huss, I agree with a lot of them. And Eck pointed at him and said, you are a heretic. And Luther left that debate shaken. But he left the debate thinking, all bets are off. Henceforth, henceforth, um, the tactic is different. And all that is just simply a way of saying that having experienced something very similar to this, this kind of defamation, it changed something for me. Of this whole incident, the Federalist wrote, the social elites want evangelicals to be as dumb as they suspect they are. But when a person comes along who proves that tale false, which Taunton clearly does, they simply don't know what to do. I would say, oh, yes, they do know what to do. They know to attack. That's the, that's the tactic that they take. A reviewer of David Horowitz's book, The Dark Agenda, says this. Lawrence Krauss, who's an astrophysicist, and David Frum, who's an editor at The Atlantic, and many others felt the need to attack Taunton. This episode, which David Horowitz briefly mentions in his recent book, Dark Agenda, The War to Destroy Christian America, underscores a larger thematic point. 
that those who have made traditional religious culture a hated enemy are doing so not because they hope to advance tolerance and understanding in a pluralistic society as they so often publicly proclaim. On the contrary, Horowitz suggests that they are, under, they are determined to advance a utopian vision. And this, by the way, gets at the core of this evening. The Marxist agenda in a post-Soviet world now parades behind the banner of social justice, Horowitz argues. Christianity, founded on a polar opposite belief system, has thus become a primary target as its critics seek to, seek to unmake traditional America. So they attacked Taunton because he represents a danger to that cause. So in other words, as you'll see this evening, the truth is not the issue. Part of what is happening here is that you're dealing with people who have an immoral agenda, but an immoral agenda that will only work against people who have a moral core, as you will see. Now, I want to play for you a brief interview that I did almost exactly a year ago um, with a Houston radio station. Now, the purpose of the interview is because at that time, um, I'm just going to play four minutes of this uh, for you. And again, signal me at the back if you can't hear this. But the, uh, the purpose of the interview was it was in response. They'd asked me to come on their, their show. Uh, this is a conservative, uh, huge um, show in Houston, I believe. And uh, it was in response to an article that I had published uh, about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's claim that, uh, and the left's claim, that Donald Trump was quote-unquote Hitler and that, um, that the border service was putting children in concentration camps. Do you remember this? Do you remember this? Now, that's not my topic this evening, but I do want you to get a sense for how rapidly the political landscape has changed in 11 months. More Jimmy Barrett now no. on KPRC 950. Real Texas. Real talk. Hello, Paraguay calling 332. <laughs> I know our number looks weird. We call guests and I always try to warn them it's going to be a weird looking five digit phone number. That'll be us. 332 here on AM 950 KPRC. Glad you could join us here today. Um, the comparisons that mainstream commentators seem to want to do of our current administration and Adolf Hitler or our border patrol system and concentration camps. The amount of Nazi references is staggering. It's staggering. And when they get called out on it, they generally double down. I know AOC was doubling down today. She refuses to back off on her comparison of what's going on at the border with concentration camps. Join us to talk about all this. Conservative cultural commentator and columnist Larry Taunton. Larry, welcome to AM 950 KPRC. Hey, it's delighted to be with you. And I, let me begin by saying that your producer speaks excellent English, given that he's from <laughs> South America. Did it really come up as Paraguay? <laughs> it did. You know, wow. I, I, I can't answer this. I'm expecting a call from Houston. I have no idea how that happens. We hear that all the time. <laughs> it just comes up as some weird number. But this is there's nothing stranger 
then listening to somebody like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez make a comparison to what we're doing at the border, uh, housing these migrants with a concentration camp, then having the director of Auschwitz or basically offer, well, we'll be glad to show you exactly what a concentration camp looks like and is. And, of course, she's not interested in that and keeps doubling down on the remark. Yeah, she's an idiot. Um, I, I, listen, I have been to Dachau, to Auschwitz. Uh, in fact, I was at Dachau just a, just a couple of months ago. I've been there several times. Auschwitz, uh, Mauthausen, um, uh, Buchenwald, uh, Mittelbaudora, several of the concentration camps. It was my good fortune many years ago to um, receive a fellowship that sent me abroad to um, study the intellectual origins of the Holocaust, and uh, and I've led tour groups there, and it's monumental historical ignorance to draw those kinds of comparisons. I mean, the concentration camps existed for a singular purpose, and that was to annihilate uh, its occupants, and that's not what's happening on the border. We're talking about people who are coming across the border illegally. They know they're coming across illegally. Uh, the United States government is uh, is rushing uh, to just put them somewhere, uh, having inadequate uh, border patrol, and of course, as we all know, no wall. Um, and so, I'm sure that they're not staying in, uh, you know, in the Ritz Carlton. Um, but you know, this is <laughs> these are not concentration camps. No, they're not. They're not even close to being concentration camps. And of course, she's making other accusations as well. But I'll leave that for another time. Um, I don't know. When we started to cross the line on mainstream media, maybe, I, I don't know if Don Lemon was the first person to do it on CNN. Do, undoubtedly, he probably wasn't. But certain plenty of the commentators, or news anchors, if you will, who are really glorified commentators, um, started making the comparisons quite a while ago, comparing President Trump to Adolf Hitler. Um, is there anybody other than Adolf Hitler in the confines of history that can be compared to Adolf Hitler? Well, Joseph Stalin, uh, Mao, um, certainly, uh, and Idi Amin, uh, there are uh, Franco, um, all different in, uh, in terms of the scale of the terror that they uh, enacted. In many ways, Stalin made uh, Hitler look like a schoolboy, and uh, he killed uh, many, many times more um, number of people in his, in his own country. But, um, but no one in American history... Um, and we may be thankful for that. I mean, the rule of law uh, remains intact in this country. And I know people complain and feel very much that, uh, that perhaps it isn't. But when it's truly absent, um, you will know it. I, I just... Has the political landscape changed since I did that interview? Hugely. I had forgotten about this interview, and I didn't even know. I don't even know how it got on my phone. But Lori and I were driving along about a week ago, and somehow that interview kicked up on my on my phone, and we start listening to it. And I go, "Oh wow!" I'd forgotten about doing this interview, and I'd forgotten. And it's it it feels so dated, particularly that last bit. The rule of law remains intact, and when it's gone, you will know it. Ladies and gentlemen, is the rule of law intact in America? Not a rhetorical question. Do you believe that the rule of law is intact? Certainly not in parts of it. 
Uh, when you can go and uh, destroy businesses, destroy homes, uh, you can destroy public property, when you can declare autonomous zones within cities, the rule of law no longer exists, at least in those places. And that is part of the nervousness that many Americans are feeling. When you see trending across uh, social media and you see uh, uh, legislators saying, defund police. It's utter madness, right? This is the kind of thing that you look at and you think, this is anarchy, there's no ultimate plan in this. And there is, which I will get to in just a moment. But this is something that has also contributed heavily to the fact that I chose to step in to the political realm. And by the way, I always had strong political opinions. Uh, you know, and, and I had been addressing them in one sense or another. And of course, it plays very much to my education and my background. So these were all things that I was prepared to do. And hopefully in a way that points people to Jesus Christ. And this is maybe just a moment to say something, a little bit of the strategy. Some of you will say, well, why in the world did you just publish a piece with the New York Post on Tom Brady? Because I don't want every editor to, when I submit something, to go, here he comes again. Another article about atheism. Another article about radical Islam. I do not want to always, an actor might say, I don't want to be typecast. So I write on everything. It's very deliberate. I look for excuses and opportunities to write on something that isn't about this heavy stuff. So that when I do submit to Fox News or so that when I do submit to the New York Post or the Wall Street Journal or whoever, they go, hmm, wonder what it's about this time. Might be interesting. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a reason for that. You just don't want to pound the, uh, the, the lectern week after week about the same issue all the time. And sometimes those give us um, tremendous opportunities, but there is a goal in that. You know, perhaps the evilest character in all of fiction appears in Shakespeare's tragedy, Othello. Unlike the typical evil characters in fiction, he's neither a thief nor is he a mass murderer. He's neither a rapist nor a cannibal. His evil isn't so overt. Indeed, his treachery is hidden from all but the audience throughout most of that play. His name is Iago, and he is a close associate of the great warrior and naive Othello. So subtle are Iago's deceits, so devious are his schemes that all who know him trust him. But he's not what he appears to be. Iago secretly hates Othello. He's jealous of him and he's determined to destroy him through rumor, innuendo, and a word dropped here and there to various parties, sowing seeds of discontent and pitting people against one another. Like Satan, who... Uh, appeared in the Garden of Eden, Iago slithers into Othello's idyllic world, destroys his marriage, and ultimately takes his life. Shakespeare scholar Harold Bloom calls him an artist of evil and, quote, a pyromaniac who wishes to set fire to everything and everyone. I shall call him a maestro of evil. Ken Burke. No, just kidding. A maestro of evil. 
Rather than performing the wicked deeds himself, he manipulates others to do the dirty work for him. Iago comes to, has come to mind many times in the last few years, but none more than during the recent events we see unfolding in the streets of America and throughout the Western world. And behind it all is the Iago-like mastermind, the maestro of evil, Saul Alinsky. Some of you will know this name. Many of you perhaps will not. Alinsky, who was born in 1909 and died in 1972, uh, he, was of, uh, he was an American, uh, born and raised in Chicago of Jewish parentage. He dedicated his life to Marxist thought, to Marxist writing, and to political agitation. He was, in other words, what my friend and fellow author David Horowitz would be had he not seen the light and deconverted from the radicalism of the left. Alinsky was a great admirer, not only of Karl Marx, who was like himself merely a theorist, but he was an admirer of Vladimir Lenin, who was a practitioner of Marx's thought. Others, of course, have implemented Marx's thought, um, uh, communists and fascists um, alike. And there are others who have used Alinsky-like tactics, not because they knew Alinsky, because they long predated Alinsky, but Alinsky knew them, and he drew ideas from them. People like Adolf Hitler, for instance. Alinsky claims no close associations there. Uh, for whatever reason, it's, uh, it's deemed to be okay to claim um, an allegiance to the ideas of Karl Marx, who, if you read a piece that I published, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago, that, that still makes the rounds every now and then, the, uh, the, ten most, uh, the ten evilest people in history. I, I have Karl Marx as number two on that list. Not because we know of him actually killing anyone, but because in an Iago-like fashion, he inspired a philosophy that led to the deaths of no less than 125 million people in the 20th century alone. That's quite a body count. Marx is behind Lenin. He's behind Stalin. He is behind guys like Alinsky, and he is behind what we're seeing taking place now. If you pay close attention, or if you know um, the history of the Third Reich, you will know of a group referred to as the Brown Shirts, who created uh, chaos in the streets throughout the 1930s. What we are seeing is Brown Shirts-like tactics. It's fascist in its, uh, in its nature, what we're, we're seeing in terms of the tactics they're using. But Alinsky authored two books that have become holy writ for the left. The first is called Reveille, for Radicals, published in 1946, and the second is Rules for Radicals, published in 1971, just one year before Alinsky's own death. Both are openly, proudly Machiavellian. If you've ever want to read an evil book, read The Prince, Machiavelli's um, a handbook for dictators, for people in power. It's, it's from him that we get the term, the end justifies the means. Uh, Machiavelli says that the prince must possess the nature of both man and beast. He must be prepared to suppress, as normal men do, the human instinct of mercy. And he must be willing to extinguish his enemies. 
This is, this is what Machiavelli wrote. And Alinsky sees himself very much in that proud tradition. So the first book, Reveille for Radicals, was a primer for organizing labor unions and industry. The second, Rules for Radicals, and by far the most influential of the two books, meant to be a sequel to Marx's Communist Manifesto, is a how-to manual for this destabilization and overthrow of existing power structures and the seizure of power. This is the playbook they are following. I promise you. And by that, I don't mean that the average guy on the street has even heard of Saul Alinsky. There are, there are many people in this issue, very well-intentioned people, who are swept up in it. The crowds are not monolithic. But the organizers know very well what they're doing. And those at the ideological core are following Alinsky's model. Alinsky is central to this presentation this evening because his writings have been enormously influential on the left. His influence on Hillary Clinton, who knew him personally and who wrote her senior thesis at Wellesley uh, on him. And she corresponded with him for quite some time and he offered her a job. And his influence on Barack Obama, which is deemed to be greater uh, because of uh, Alinsky's uh, model for quote-unquote community organizers. This is the way you agitate. You become a community organizer. It's all very well documented. But now a new generation seeks to put into practice the play this dead maniac drew up on the chalkboard. And if we're to properly interpret our modern events, we must understand that Sololinsky is the man behind it. We must understand something about the playbook that's driving what we're seeing. Again, perhaps you're thinking that there's no rhyme or reason for what is going on. It's just anarchy. But I assure you that those organizing it are following his playbook. Now, Alinsky laid out 13 rules in his book. You get these on Amazon. By the way, Amazon is bumping off conservative authors. I'll be surprised if my book, which comes out in October, is still available on Amazon. But Alinsky's book, you can get, uh, they're promoting it. It's, uh, it's right there. Alinsky's books, I should say. But he had 13 rules for the seizure of power and second, for maintaining it once it's been acquired. And rather than binding myself to his verbiage and his characterization of those rules, I will offer you 13 rules of my own that are gathered from a straightforward reading of Alinsky. So they're really Alinsky's rules, but I'm, I'm basically translating Alinsky to you. Because Alinsky's own words, which sometimes are quite shocking, also can sound quite innocuous and harmless. But when you understand what is really at the core, what he's really saying, you recognize the danger uh, that, is, that, that lies within. The first rule is to divide and conquer. This is done through careful, carefully targeted agitation of various people groups playing on their latent fears and suspicions of one another. Finding a noose conveniently in a NASCAR garage is a perfect way of doing this. If you followed any of that in media. Why? Because it plays on the fears that some people already have that you want to hang them. It plays on it, and it incites their fear. That's the goal. 
That's the objective. Rather than stressing our commonality, e pluribus unum, which you'll find on your own money, out of many, one, we stress our differences. It's the opposite of the melting pot philosophy. Now you're seeing this, right? See absolutely what is happening. Two, create scapegoats. Um, Russian historian Roy Medvedev said, any, any despot seeking to create the cult of his own personality must have a scapegoat. Hitler, for Hitler, it was the Jews. And uh, for Stalin, it was the Trotskyists. It was the capitalists. It was always somebody to focus your anger and your hate on. It's a way of making you feel better about yourself. You're not the enemy. They are. Get them. Those people, they're the problem for everything that's not right about your life. Create scapegoats. Demonize them. And create a vast, scary public enemy like vast right-wing conspiracies, Russian collusion narratives. Coronavirus falls into that category. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that it isn't real. What I'm suggesting is, surely you've picked up on the fact it has been politicized. Hugely. To frighten you. And to make you much more easily managed. White supremacists. Who are these people? I grew up in Alabama, and perhaps I'm incredibly naive. I don't know where all the KKK people are. Do you guys know a bunch of KKK people? Do they, if, they surely don't have any political power. I'm not saying that they don't exist. I'm saying that, that they're a big nothing. But if we can root out and find a few of them and splash their names across the paper, then we can create the image they're taking over. I think I have met in my life, I think, two Holocaust deniers. I remember it because it was so startling for me. Guys who fall into the category of genuine white supremacists, where I sat with slack jaw going, are you really saying what I think you're saying? In other words, so rare have I encountered that kind of mentality that it made such a massive impression upon me when I did. But I've met all kinds of people who fall into the category of Romans 1, haters of God. <laughs> Loads of those people. Create scapegoats. Three, create chaos. Why? Because Alinsky says that riots and looting and criminal activity is to your benefit because it undermines your in-power opponent, making him look weak, indecisive, and incompetent. And if he responds decisively, so much the better. Now your narrative will become that he's a violent oppressor of the people. Tucker Carlson was wondering a few nights ago, why hasn't he dropped the 82nd Airborne on Seattle? I promise you that the reason he doesn't is because he knows exactly he, he is Hitler. Look what he's doing. Killing us in the streets. That will be the narrative. 
Some of you will have read an article that I published last week about Kojido, um, which is an island off the coast of South Korea. And I um, wrote this article because in 1952, communist agitators within the prison camp there, a very famous event, communist agitators within the prison camp at Kojido, this is during the Korean War, more than 100,000 prisoners pushed them to riot. The idea was to undermine the moral authority of America, create, create martyrs for the cause. If you get killed, so much the better for the cause. We can then say, look what the Americans are doing. And so they rioted. They captured an American general, pulled him within the camp, and placed him on trial. It was a global catastrophe and embarrassment to the United States as one of their own brigadier generals sat on trial for crimes against humanity. <laughs> by the communists. I know of a very personal connection to this because my father was an airborne ranger who was ordered to that island along with a thousand other paratroopers. And they were told, you will put down this riot of these 80,000 prisoners and you'll do it without firing a shot. And they did. And they were ordered in and they went in and with their fists and with um, flash grenades and uh, with uh, the butt of rifles, they brought radicals to heal. Many of them killing their own people, by the way. Dozens of people killed by their own people. Anyone who wanted to surrender was immediately killed by the agitators because they would not be permitted to make peace with the Americans, but the idea was to embarrass them. And so headlines around the world um, in, in uh, media that was sympathetic uh, to the communist cause said, we've all heard the story of Auschwitz and Maidenek. Now we have Koji Do, where Americans are slaughtering their prisoners. It was sheer nonsense. But this is the exact same playbook that is being followed now. Except then, America knew how to deal with it, and did, effectively. America naively fell into the trap of negotiating with the prisoners to begin with, only to see one of their own captured, and then they realized, you know what? I don't think they really want to negotiate. I think this whole thing is a trap. And that's when the airborne units were sent in, to end it. But chaos is the goal. Four, make it a movement. Make it a movement. The Bolsheviks, when they seized power in 1917, they were always about the seizure of power in Russia. But they never really said that publicly. They created a movement with a very clever and simple slogan that had mass appeal. Some of you will know it. Peace, bread, land. That was their slogan. Peace, bread, land. It... You're opposed to Bolsheviks, so I guess you're opposed to peace, bread, and land. You don't want me to have land. You don't want my family to eat. You want this war to just continue endlessly. That's what you want, isn't it? People, you must understand the difference between Black Lives Matters, Black Lives Matter, um, a statement of human dignity and worth, 
And Black Lives Matter, a domestic terrorist organization that has absolutely nothing to do with race. They are hijacking it. They are hijacking the sensibilities of naive people for their own cause. This is why you're not able to quite determine what it is they're doing. Because it's always moving. But the idea, again, create a movement that garners to your banner. That people rally to your side because of the nobility it appears to have. This is why so many have been so easily cowed into silence. Because they don't want to appear to be saying, I don't think black lives matter. Do you see, you see the clever tactic to paralyze you? This is the way that it works. Those unwary souls who flock to the cause are what Ludwig von Mises called useful innocence. Since then, many have called them useful idiots. I'll take the gentler term because I do know people on the other side who are good-hearted, fine people, many of them Christians, who really believe it is about squashing injustice. They just don't know what is, what, what is really behind it. So there is a kind of innocence of some of those who are swept up in this. And I'm not talking about people who are smashing storefronts or who are tearing down statues or burning things. I'm talking about people who are showing up at, at, at some of these protests. Number five, political trash talk. Rodolinsky, quote, ridicule is man's most potent weapon because it is almost impossible to counterattack. This is what you're seeing when you see police officers standing rigid and someone is coming and getting in their face and shouting at them. Have you seen these videos? They are being trained to do this. This is the playbook. Are any of you familiar with, um, gosh, I think they're terrific. Project Veritas. They are awesome. And they have cojones, forgive me for saying it, but they have some guts. They have penetrated any number of evil. But what they did with Planned Parenthood was just marvelous. But they got into a couple of these meetings where the protesters are being organized and they're being given instructions. Have any of you seen this? You can find it online. And they are being told, you are to do as much harm as possible without getting caught. Gouge the eyes. It will disable your opponent. Punches to the kidneys and to the, to the um, lower unattached ribs. If you break one of those, your opponent will be down. Cause as much harm as possible without getting caught. And ridicule your opponents. Make them feel shame. That's Olinsky's word. Make them feel shame. Attacking them. You see some of these, and by the way, there are loads of white people behind this. You're watching these, these videos of these latte-carrying upper-class women who are standing and shouting, one of the most recent videos I saw, at black police officers. 
And they're trying to get a reaction. And that's why I call it political trash talk. Because it's like what you see in football, you know, where, where this is a Southern crowd, so surely this works. Where a guy gets up and he calls another guy's mother a name. And that guy reacts, but the, but the official didn't see the first, but he saw the second. And he throws the flag and the other guy's smiling like, see ya. And that guy's been thrown out of the game. The goal, says Alinsky, is to get them to react. That's what you want. But he also says that you want to, again, as I said, you want to make them feel shame and you want to attack their heroes, their values. And you see, because they have no values of their own, and this is what I meant earlier. Their only value is the acquisition of power. That's what it's all about. I thought it was very interesting in an interview I saw about, I don't know, maybe four months ago with um, James Carville. I was talking about Bernie Sanders. It was probably more than that then. He was saying, this guy, we, we can't have this guy win. Because it's all about power. You have to gain power. We need power, says Carville. And I thought Carville is stating it just as, just as brutally honestly as what the others aren't really prepared to say. And he says, this guy isn't going to give us power. He isn't going to do that. But what you do is you attack your opponent on his own moral grounds. So meaning, I'm going to attack, let's say you're a member of the military and you've taken an oath or you're a Christian or whatever. I'm going to attack and hold you to those values and I'm going to find an inconsistency because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, so you're a Christian. What about this thing that you said here? What about this thing that you did? This, by the way, is the tactics being used against your heroes. You revere Washington? Why, he was a slave owner. You revere Winston Churchill? He was for empire. Do you, do you see how endlessly this can go? Attack them with uh, by rid with ridicule, but also create an atmosphere of cynicism. This was the attack on Brett Kavanaugh. This was, uh, this was the attack on Robert Bork. I met him, by the way. Absolute genius, but that's a conversation for another time. Listen to this quotation. I understood the infamous spiritual terror which this movement exerts, particularly on the bourgeoisie, that is the middle class, which is neither morally nor mentally equal to such attacks. At a given sign, it unleashes a veritable barrage of lies and slander against whatever adversary seems most dangerous until the nerves of the attack person break down. This is a tactic based on precise calculation of all human weaknesses, and its result will lead to excess with almost mathematical certainty. I achieved an equal understanding of the importance of physical terror towards the individual and the mass for while in the ranks of their own supporters, the victory achieved seems a triumph of the justice of their own cause. The defeated adversary, in most cases, despairs of the success and offers no further resistance. Do you know where that's from? Mein Kampf. Adolf Hitler. 
It was an observation he made while in Vienna in the 1920s when he was a, a nothing. He wasn't even somebody that anybody thought would ever have political power. But he was talking about the power of the Social Democrats in Vienna in the 1920s. And he said they were effective because they knew how to frighten their opponents and they unleash a barrage of lies against them until that person cowers and breaks down a la Drew Brees. And by the way, I don't say that to pick on Drew Brees. I like Drew Brees. I think Drew Brees is a, is a fine human being. I think Drew Brees, they were calculating that Drew Brees would, as a result of his own moral base, that Drew Brees would assume he was dealing with reasonable people. And Drew Brees would think an apology would count for something. They never believed he was guilty of racism. I don't believe that for a second. What they did want to destroy was his willingness to stand against what they were doing. So attack, attack, attack. Now, I won't name the individual, but some of you might be able to guess. But a friend of mine about a month ago went through the Drew Brees treatment. Trending all over social media, was being called a racist. He's a prominent figure, a prominent author. And uh, I texted him and I said, do not apologize. They don't care about your apology. It's not about your apology. Do not apologize. You said nothing wrong. And he wrote back, brother, I appreciate you telling me that because I'm getting attacked by people on my own side. I know this from personal experience. Christians save their most venom for other Christians. They love to have signs that say, we accept broken people here. They don't believe it. It's bullshit. Excuse me. Most Christians just simply don't. And Christians loved a virtue signal to the other side by attacking their own people. Do you see what a good person I am? Because I'm going to attract, attack Drew Brees and tell him how wrong he is in the most vicious of terms. There is a crowd, and I'm thinking of this as an article, cancel culture Christians. If there was a time when Christians need each other, it is now. If there is a time when social conservatives need each other, it is now. If you are a patriotic American, you don't need to alienate people on your own side. But I was telling this person, don't back down. Don't. And stop tweeting about it. Every clarification just gets worse. It's what they want. You didn't do anything wrong to begin with. Truth is irrelevant to them. The goal is to keep you moving. The goal is to discredit you. That's the goal. Another advantage of ridicule, says Alinsky, is that it infuriates the opposition who will then react to your advantage. You see how all this is playing out? You see this in media and social media especially. And it's what you're seeing in all those videos of mass protesters attacking the police. Number six, disinformation. Maintain an unrelenting campaign of public disinformation while accusing your enemies of deception. 
The more outrageous the accusations, the better. Keep them busy defending themselves against lies while you move forward with your plan. Hence the interview that I played for you earlier. Trump is Adolf Hitler. Maybe Alexandria Cortez really isn't bright enough to know the difference. My guess is she knows very well that he's not Adolf Hitler. You may not like Trump. This isn't a Trump rally. But I am saying to you that if you believe some of the stuff that's being said, some people have asked me why have I defended Trump because I didn't think Trump would keep any of his promises. I really didn't. I'll tell you who I voted for. I voted for Ted Cruz in the, uh, in the primaries. And I knew he was going to take the state of Alabama in the general election. And I thought this whole thing was just, uh, what was that show he on, was on? You're fired or something? What's it called? Apprentice. I thought this is just a, you know, furthering marketing opportunity. And then I would watch a press conference where he says one thing, and I would read a media report that says exactly the opposite. And I would think this is outrageous. The Russia-Trump narrative? Are you kidding me? Do you really think, do you really think Putin wants him as president of the United States? I promise you he did not. But you're watching the whole thing play out and you're thinking, I saw a political cartoon that I thought this is exactly right. It was called something like the Trump, um, what was, what do they call it? The, the Trump translator. And it shows press conference saying one thing and then it comes out the other side and it says exactly the opposite. Absolutely outrageous. And to be, to be clear with you, you know, I have, I have seen Christians who are saying things like, we want an outstanding moral man who is X, Y, and Z. Read your Bibles. How many of those guys did you find in the Bible? Did Nebuchadnezzar fall into that category? Did Cyrus? Did Darius? How many of those people did God use? All of them who were sympathetic to the other side and they believed in justice. If you're waiting for that individual, good luck. You might have had him with George W. Bush. And honestly, I'd prefer a guy who just has the guts to stand for something, and I don't care who he sleeps with. At the end of the day, I don't care how much he tweets. It just really doesn't matter to me. He can say what he wants, but at the end of the day, I hope that he executes justice and upholds the Constitution. Now, I'm, ex I'm just expressing my opinion, which you are free to trash and to disregard. But I will say that some of the things that I hear Christians saying just does not, it doesn't match up with the Bible that I read. Listen to this quotation. It's by, from William Shire's book, uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, a massive mega bestseller, many of you will recall from a previous generation, is still out there in hardback, still selling like crazy. Shire was a, uh, was a journalist, an American journalist, um, who was um, posted in Berlin right up to Pearl Harbor, just short of Pearl Harbor. And this is what he said about media that is so interesting to me. I'm riding around on my mower and I'm listening to this and I go, whoa, 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 I gotta write that down. I myself was to experience how easily one is taken in by a lying and censored uh, press and radio in a totalitarian state. 
Though unlike most Germans, I had daily access to foreign newspapers, especially those of London, Paris, and Zurich, which arrived the day after publication. And though I listened regularly to the BBC and other foreign broadcasts, my job necessitated the spending of many hours a day combing through the German press, checking the German radio, conferring with Nazi officials, and going to party meetings. It was surprising and sometimes consternating to find that notwithstanding the opportunities I had to learn the facts, um, uh, despite one's inherent distrust of what one was learning from Nazi sources, a steady diet over the years of falsifications and distortions made a certain impression upon one's mind and often misled it. No one who has not lived on for years under a totalitarian regime can possibly conceive of how difficult it is to escape the dread consequences of a regime's calculated and incessant propaganda, often in a German home or office or sometimes at a casual conversation with a stranger in a restaurant, a beer hall, a cafe, I would meet with the most outlandish assertions from seemingly educated, intelligent persons. It was obvious that they were parroting some piece of nonsense they had heard on the radio or read in the newspapers. Sometimes one was tempted to say as much, but on such occasions one was met with such a stare of incredulity, such a shock of silence, as if one had blasphemed the Almighty, that one realized how useless it was to even try to make contact with a mind which has become warped and for whom the facts of life had become what Hitler and Goebbels, with their cynical disregard for truth, said that they were. That is not a, a quotation I would read in a setting like this even five years ago. It would have felt just too overwrought. I have been saying actually for a very long time, from people who would speak of, of uh, media conspiracy um, when we did our Super Bowl commercial, whatever year that was, 2011, there were loads of people when I was doing interviews all over the country that Fox rejecting it, that there was some conspiracy involved. And I said, no, not at all. Fox is trying to give the people what they want. And our messaging was not one that they wanted. They're trying to save their jobs. That's what they were trying to do. People try to say to me that CNN is, you know, way leftist. I say, look, I write quite a lot for CNN. I've been invited on CNN many times, and I've been grateful for um, the fair and open exchange of ideas that I've had on that network. Not now. Wow. The absolute disregard for truth is extraordinary. Think back to what I was telling you of my personal experience where someone says to you that they know you didn't say a particular thing, but I'm going to say you did anyway. Because I'm counting that the audience isn't going to read the book. And when I'm done, they won't want to. Because I am setting out to destroy you personally. That's the goal. That's the goal. Number seven, the thing is never the thing. That's a quotation of Alinsky himself. The thing is never the thing, he said. The thing is the revolution. It's actually a nonsensical statement. It's not actually very clever when you think about it. Um, but anyway, I'll let you work that tautology out. But um, the thing is never the thing. And have you ever found yourself wondering, what is the goal of these protests? What do they want? Is it about justice for George Floyd? George, George Floyd, excuse me. Is it about ending police brutality? Is it about ending racism? Is it about equality? None of the above. 
Others, thinking they knew what it was about early on, were caught off guard when the protest took an unexpected turn and began attacking not just perceived racism, but America in general. This was the mistake of Tucker Carlson just a few nights ago uh, when he wondered why Black Lives Matter protesters were tearing down the statue of an abolitionist. And Coulter wondered the same thing. Carlson and Coulter wrongly assumed that Black Lives Matter is motivated by issues of race and equality. They are not. This is merely a virtuous cover for a Marxist agenda. The goal is much broader than that. The thing is not the thing. In other words, we're going to keep moving the goalposts. Do you ever find that yourself thinking that with coronavirus? Originally, it was we're going to flatten the curve. And then the goalposts were moved. And then they were moved again. And then we have to have a cure. Well, in similar fashion, Alinsky, what he means by this is the idea is to obfuscate the issues by continually changing them. Keep your enemy frustrated in his search for what you want. Don't give him the end game that he seeks. Don't be reasonable, but continually accuse him of being unreasonable. If he meets one demand, make another, and then another, and still another. This is what happened to Senator Tom uh, Scott yesterday in discussions with Senate Democrats on the so-called Justice Act. I was sitting and reading that yesterday, last night, and I thought, man, this is just, I hope he knows what he's dealing with. Because... Um, this is what he had to say. He said, I offered to include an amendment for every concern that they presented. They offered zero and walked out. If he's thinking that the goal is that here's our set of demands, here's yours. And as Americans, we're taught to Monty Hall, let's make a deal. Right? Let's negotiate it. Again, this was my naivete in the early days of Fixed Point. It's just a misunderstanding. We're going to sit down and have a conversation. I'll explain to you that what you think is about us is not right, and you'll explain to me that what I think about you is not right, and we'll meet somewhere in the middle, and we'll be friends. No. They know very well what you are about. This was some of the, some of the naivete in dealing with communists and even you know, with, say, a figure like Osama bin Laden. They just really don't understand, do they? No, they understand very well. And they hate you. They know who you are. And they want to destroy you. It's not a misunderstanding. Alinsky says you cannot risk being trapped by your enemy in his sudden agreement with your demands. <laughs> this was the mistake of Adolf Hitler. In 1938, at his Munich meeting with Neville Chamberlain, he made outrageous demands, which Chamberlain agreed to in toto, threw Czechoslovakia totally under the bus. And Hitler, rather than leaving feeling triumphant, he was angry. Why? Because he wanted war. So... A year later, he gets it. And how did he do it? He accused the Poles of persecuting German people in land that should be Germany's to begin with, and he invaded it. It's a pretext for war. It was what he wanted all along. 
Alinsky, who no doubt knew this story very well, said, don't make that mistake. If he agreed to your demands, make another. Just make another. It's not about the thing. The goal is the seizure of power. And that brings me to number eight, seize power. And this is done by presenting yourself as the solution to the chaos that you have created. The brown shirts destroy whole segments of society. There's fighting in the streets. And Adolf Hitler stamps into the chaos and says, I'm your solution. I cannot help but notice, and by the way, I'm not suggesting that Joe Biden is in any way, shape, or form Adolf Hitler. I will not do what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did. <laughs> but I can't help but notice that, that the messaging of Democrats is about peace and unity. Have you picked up on this? They're suggesting themselves as the solution to a problem they are creating. Yesterday, in an interview with Fox Lives News, Fox, excuse me, Fox News Network. Boy, that could be get a little touchy there, but uh, I'd hold your tongue and say that 10 times. Um, a leader for Black Lives Matter said, we will burn this country to the ground if you do not give us what we want. This is a page taken straight out of the Quran. Read Surah, um, I believe it's 12 and 39. Those verses, those Surahs that say, he says, and I've kind of composite them both. Terrorize them, the unbelievers, and give them no rest until all is for Allah. It's very similar. It's the same idea. This is the goal. Alinsky said radicals, quote, must remain flexible, opportunistic, and willing to say anything to get power. That's why you and I are so easily deceived by politicians who come along and say, I feel your pain. I'm with you. I believe in Jesus. Or I believe in protecting Americans or whatever until power is acquired. And once power is acquired, all bets are off. That's what this is about. Then, very quickly, let me say this, the remaining five points. Once you're in power, says Alinsky, you begin ideologically transforming, reforming the levers of popular coercion, that is the police and the military. You already see that that's going on. They don't want to get rid of defund police. They want to create a police that, that falls into um, their own ideological camp. That's what they want. And uh, that's because these are coercive levers of power. If I control the police, I can control you. If I control the military, I can control you. That has been true throughout history. Suppressed, uh, number 10, suppressed dissent with force and threat of force. Do what I say or else. Number 11, burn books. Eliminate free speech because it is a danger to, quote, public safety. 
So much of your freedom is taken from you in the name of safety. In the name of safety. This is already, the book burning has already begun electronically. The free speech is being suppressed. The left is not for free speech. They do not want dialogue with you. They do not want to have a reasonable conversation. And by the way, I am speaking of those who are driving the movement on the line. I'm not suggesting that every Democrat falls into this category. That's not my point. I am simply saying that those who are driving this, this isn't what they want. It is definitely not what Alinsky wanted. 12, create a sense of ongoing and eminent threat from an exaggerated, fictitious enemy, if need be. The Trotskyists, the white supremacists, the Jews, the fascists, the evangelical Christians, you name it. We create a vast, scary public enemy to unite all of you against. And we root out any semblance of it. And we accuse lots of people of it. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in, I don't know, I think, 74, says of this after his arrest. As they're dragging you off to prison, you're saying to yourself, but I'm not guilty of this. And you're screaming, I didn't do this. And I am loyal to the regime and so on. And he said, and soon it dawns on you, they don't care. Your guilt or innocence is immaterial. It's not the point. The point is that in dragging you off to prison, they create the perception that they want. This is the way the KGB worked. We don't know if there are any anti-regime people in your apartment building, but what we're going to do is we're going to conduct a midnight rain, a raid and we're going to arrest three or four people and accuse them of it. And it will terrorize all of you because you will think I had a conversation with that person, didn't know that she was anti-regime or she was this or she was that. It creates a sense of the secret police's omnipresence. You think they were listening the whole time and knew. The reality was they didn't know a thing. They were never that efficient. But by seizing a few of you, it creates the impression of omniscience and omnipresence. This is how it worked. Number 13, my last Alinsky rule. Some of you will breathe a deep sigh of relief with that. Rig elections. Now, some of these you will say, well, what do you mean? Once they're in power, they're already doing these things. That's because they're already somewhat in power. They control a number of governorships and they control a number of municipalities where it is possible to, you've been seeing the increasingly the move for uh, um, voter, uh, excuse me, what do I want to say? Um, mail-in ballot, excuse me, thank you. Um, some pushing for it to be online. Brother, if you don't think that will be a recipe for extraordinary election fraud, you are more naive than I am. Once in power, you control the levers of power. You control the elections themselves. And you guarantee that you are in power in perpetuity. These are the things 
that are going on, or I predict will, unless this is reversed. Does it sound familiar? I think it does to many of you. The ultimate goal, someone asked me beforehand this evening, what is the end game in all this? It is, it is to destroy, under the acids of your cynicism, your heroes and your patriotism because it is rooted in a Judeo-Christian worldview. And as, as David Horowitz pointed out in what I read at the beginning, Christianity is the chief barrier to the left's primary objective because it is, it is ideologically the opposite of socialism. It is the opposite of the global utopia that Horowitz spoke of that they wish to create. Now, some of you will think this sounds just completely outrageous. Hopefully, I was saying, somebody pointed out to me this evening that I said some of this at his church more than a decade ago. Doesn't seem so silly now. This is the direction that this is going. It is the goal to destroy, again, under the acids of cynicism, your patriotism, your heroes, your belief in your own values to bully you into silence, into disillusionment, to create something in its place. I said, I think on Twitter, maybe a few months ago, and people thought this sounded crazy then. Beware. The objective will be to make you feel to, to paint the American flag the way the Confederate flag has been, planned, been um, portrayed so that you're afraid to fly it. Because if you do, you'll be labeled a racist. People thought, that ain't going to happen. It's America. The whole Colin Kaepernick thing was going on. You're hearing people saying this isn't about the flag. If it isn't about the flag, why do you do it during the raising of the flag? <laughs> The point isn't that you need to worship the flag or fly it. The point is, it's what it represents that they seek to destroy. I love what my son, uh, Zachary, who's in here somewhere, said when he went with me on much of the around the world trip that we did. And he said, you know, at the end of the trip, and I thought he said this, it was a nice little summary to our trip. He said, America is the greatest country in the world because of the ideal of America. In other words, like every nation on earth, America is a nation of sinners. It is a nation of, of, um, uh, that has a, a, a history that at times is spotted, horrifying, immoral and wrong. But the ideals, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I would challenge a Colin Kaepernick if you really are about race, don't kneel during the flag. Get Americans to live up to the standards of it. Do you really believe that all men are created? That's what Martin Luther King did. Martin Luther King, that's why you cannot confuse what's happening with the, the movement of Martin Luther King Jr. He appealed to a Christian nation on Christian grounds. And he said, how can you say and give us less rights than yours if you really believe that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. 
We should deserve those rights the same as you. And Americans responded to that by saying with law, yes, that's true. We have been inconsistent with our own principles. That is not what is going on here. The idea is to destroy those principles. Peter Hitchens, a few years ago, wrote a beautiful column in the Daily Mail in which he said, America alone. It is a country that alone still believes in the antiquated idea of patriotism. They're skeptical, unlike the rest of the world, of the environmentalist agenda. They prefer to go their own way. They're ruggedly individualist. They wave their flags. We stopped doing that in Britain after World War II. They think some things are actually worth fighting for. He said, I fear that they will change sides in the global battle because they're the last best hope on earth. As Lincoln put it. I want to be clear in saying this to you. My point isn't to wrap your faith in the American flag. Heaven will not be lined with American flags. Jesus was not an American. That's not my point. But my point is that this country was founded, yes, by a flawed people. But founded on those Judeo-Christian principles. And it has served as a bulwark against the barbarism that is engulfing the rest of the world. Even for those people who don't believe in Jesus Christ. This is what Christopher Hitchens so readily recognized. And as of late, Richard Dawkins is coming to recognize. This is where we are. So again, what fascinates me about Alinsky's program is, that, is what is implied. And that is, it is an immoral program that targets immoral people. Use their morality against them. The Christian response, don't confuse social justice with the gospel. They aren't the same thing. Don't confuse the civil rights movement, as I said a moment ago, with uh, that, of the civil, uh, that of Martin Luther King. Uh, excuse me, don't confuse the civil rights movement of Martin Luther King with the rioting that we see in our streets. Don't confuse the blood of the lamb over the doorpost with a Black Lives Matter sign in your front yard or on your NASCAR or a rainbow in your business window. I would say that churches need to invest in people. I've been saying for a very long time, I made a few enemies some, some years ago and I tweeted a picture of a, of a bulldozer bulldozing a family life center and I said, my program for the American church to build no more family life centers. I'm watching churches that build, that spend millions and millions and millions on their infrastructure and pay their people almost nothing. Churches need to invest in people. And they need to invest in people of talent. They need to invest uh, in people of determination, of skill. They need to attract the best and the brightest. They need to stop building all the big construction. They will all be empty. 
All these huge churches, you can't sling a dead cat in Birmingham without hitting a, a mega church. They are all going to belong to somebody else. They will be empty in a decade. And in some ways that won't be bad because as the pressure comes, you will see those people who are there only for the social benefit it gives them begin to melt away. And we're going to find out who really believes it and who doesn't. Some of you will know, some of you will know that I don't know if it's true. I'd like to believe it's true, but it's a story that is often told in the old Soviet Union of an NKVD officer, the KGB predecessor, walking into a church and people looking behind and seeing them with their rifles. And he said, everybody who doesn't believe it, get out. Two thirds of the people left. And they sat down and they said to the priest, continue. We just didn't want to be here with people who didn't believe this. That's the world that we're moving for, towards. You will need courage to decide now what you will do when the pressure comes. You're in a pickle if you're trying to make a decision about it, what you're going to do in a firefight. In the firefight, it's ahead of time that you're deciding what you're going to do. What, what happens if your business or your wealth or your reputation are on the line? Are you willing to risk the public recrimination? Are you willing to risk it for the sake of what you really believe? I hope the answer is yes. But decide now what you will do. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew what they were going to do before the music was played. And they said, we will not bow down. These are things that you need to decide now. You must be prepared to be attacked. Maybe not the way that I've been attacked because, uh, you know, perhaps you're not a public figure. But if, but if you stand firm, you will be attacked. You will be ostracized. Whatever is in your past will be dredged up and used against you. Failing that, they'll just make stuff up. But if it didn't stop Abraham, who was a sinner... And David, who was a sinner, and Peter, who was a sinner, and Paul, who was a sinner, why should it slow you down either? Don't wallow in your sin, in your guilt. Move on. And this is, this is really the heart of my message this evening. Having gone around the world to write this book, Around the World in More Than 80 Days, What Makes America Great and Why We Must Fight to Save It, out in mid-October. I decided that what makes America great is not because we are, we're not innately different, right? I mean, human nature is the same the world over. What's different is the philosophy of America versus the philosophies of other governments and other nations and peoples. That great philosopher, Bono, Singer for you too. He, he says America is an idea. G.K. Chesterton said the same thing. So did Margaret Thatcher. We're a nation formed by history, said Thatcher. America is an idea. I love what one sociologist said. He said, you're not Irish if you weren't born in Ireland. You're not a Scot if you weren't born in Scotland. You're not a German if you weren't born in Germany. In America, you're not an American if you don't believe in America. That's what makes you American. 
the idea of America. And to Zachary's point, it is the idea, the standard to which we have aspired to as a people. So that even in our darkest day of civil war, the healing that came because we worshipped a similar, uh, excuse me, not similar, the same God. And we believed in the same standards. In the dark days of oppression of people of color, Americans appealed to their own standards and said, let's live up to them. Let's be better than what we've been. In a war, two wars, after which America was victorious and might have ruled the whole world, America said, let's be gentle and magnanimous to the vanquished and let's rebuild them. What country does this? The difference is not that America doesn't have sins in her past. It is that America has been given the antidote for her sins, just as you and I have. You make mistakes, you make decisions, you fail, and the antidote isn't to commit suicide as Judas did. It's to do what Peter did, to remember the words of the Lord, Scripture says. who said to him, and when you turn, essentially said, I have a mission for you. You're not done. In Germany, you feel that Germany is a nation, their guilt has been used against them, their collective guilt. They wallow in the guilt. Even a generation that had absolutely nothing to do with the Holocaust. They wallow in the guilt of the Holocaust. And they fear calling out um, evil within their own society that's taking place with, uh, with, with Muslim immigrants in many instances because they fear being called racist, because they fear the specter of Nazi Germany. Because they don't have the antidote to their own sin, their collective sin as a nation. Do you understand what I'm telling you? They, they don't know how to move past it because they have no national philosophy of redemption. We do. And that's why we've been able to move forward after catastrophic moral disasters as individuals and as a nation. That's what America is. And I close with this. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. It's not in Donald Trump. It's not in who governs us. But my, the battle lines have been drawn. In North London is Highgate, Highgate, as they say, cemetery. Among the 53,000 greats, there are a few notables. Michael Faraday, the inventor of the electric motor, is one of them. Adam Worth, who is the real-life model for Sherlock Holmes' evil character, Moriarty, is buried there. But the most notable of all is Karl Marx. A large statue is there. People make pilgrimages to it from all over the world. Workers of the world unite, was his message. In the south of London is West Norwood Cemetery. Among the 42,000 graves one finds there, there are also some notables. Alexander Parks 
inventor of plastic, and Hiram Maxim, the inventor of the first portable machine gun, the great killer of the First World War. Perhaps more illustrious than either of these is uh, the grave of Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. Spurgeon was the 19th century British equivalent to Billy Graham. In 1857, at the request of Queen Victoria, the 23-year-old Spurgeon electrified London by preaching to a crowd of 24,000 at the Crystal Palace with his sermon on the first day of creation. No mic. We had concerns this evening with no mic, with roughly, I don't know, 100 people. 23,000, and he could be heard perfectly. It is extraordinary to me that Marx and Spurgeon lived in London at the same time, and both of them were competing for the souls of men. There is, that might be my next book, by the way, because it is an epic story. Two men that, to our knowledge, they never met, but they both had to be very aware of each other because they were both famous in their own lifetime. Both of them preaching a message of salvation, one totally secular and false that has led to the deaths of untold millions, the other paving a pathway to heaven. The first utopian, because it says that man is not innately evil. And oddly, Spurgeon's message, which says you are evil, you are fallen, is the more compassionate of the two. Because it says you need the help of Jesus Christ. You yourself can never be the author of your own salvation. Both men in London at the same time. Today, the battle continues, but the battlefield has expanded to the entire world. And it morphs a little here and there. As David Horowitz said so marvelously, it has now become hidden, the same agenda in so-called social justice. The message of the gospel remains remarkably unchanged. That is the message. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. After the lights, the party's over. They say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now?